of those two miracles, we have another statement of what I'm sure is the intent of the Gospel of Mark, where this man called Legion says in verse 7 of chapter 5, crying with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So whilst there were many who would not recognize who he was, even from the mouth of this most unexpected exclaimer, there came a statement of wonderful truth. In Mark chapter 3, where we were, he has made the foundations of his ecclesia. In chapter 4, he has given warning that whilst the gospel might be sent to all types, whilst there are many that are called, there are few who accept with joyful hearts the full meaning and intent of what he has said. And so he gave to them a list of remarkable parables, and we read in verse 33, And with many such parables spake he the word unto them. Many of those parables, or quite a number extra of them, are contained in Matthew chapter 13. And it says, But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. So after the formal part, as it were, of his exposition to them, they then sat together and they understood the things that were said. And after so many people were about him, and after such teaching, after such a, a tremendous uprising as we saw yesterday, in all of that area, in interest in him and general popularity towards his cause, when the calls upon his resources were absolutely beyond that which was normal for a man, the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Just a detail there from Matthew. In his eighth chapter, there's a little statement there which fills the picture that might perhaps be supposed in Mark but becomes very clear in Matthew. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 19 or verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side so that we have a fatigued son of man who seeing yet another large crowd felt that he had need for some building up of his reserves and so he gave commandment that they were to depart unto the other side Sea of Galilee is a, a very beautiful body of water it's a large sea for an inland lake it's called a sea, it's really a lake isn't it but it's a large body of water about 8 miles by 5 miles surrounded not by magnificent country uh, true the country on the western side is a little more uh, uh, prosperous than that on the east but the east has really a very small fringe of flat land around it in fact as you get into the northern half it hasn't any there's just a little strip there where one of the kibbutz called Ein Gev you may have heard of that it's one that the Syrians used to shell didn't they very often in the days when they had the Golden Heights there's just a little strip there on that southern half of the lake which widens out as the, as the lake then starts to come in but there's not a lot of land along that side really at all. It's the land of the Gadarenes. 
But uh, on the western side, there are some areas where the lake, if you can imagine that western shore, comes in like that. That section there is quite a wide piece of plain, much wider anyway than the brim of the lake is in any other of its positions. So the Lord therefore asks that they have opportunity to go across the lake and escape for some building up of his spiritual reserves. It was a very tired master that wished to find some retreat. So he gave commandment, let us pass over unto the other side. And verse 36 says, And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. Now it's a very beautiful picture that you have there. It was even time. We're told that in verse 35. Same day when even was come. You see, they've been going all day. Tremendous excitement. Tremendous giving of himself in word and in work. Watching out for his disciples. After many weeks of great industry. Gathering a, a popularity and following. A tremendous giving of himself. And you can see the, the sun rise uh, setting behind them it would be, wouldn't it? Going down in the west over those hills of Galilee. As he was saying, let us depart and go to the other side away from, from men and away from the sun, as it, as it would be. So the disciples, apparently caught by the circumstances of the time, one can really sense that they, they took a relish in this caring for their master. I suppose in his company it always would seem that, that he was giving you, wouldn't it? That he was caring for you, and that he was so self-sufficient. You said to him, look, master, have something to eat. And he said, I have meat to eat of which you know not. What did he do with a person like that? It would almost seem as though you could never care for him because he was so, so lofty above the sons of men, so different, so self-sufficient in that which God was providing him as food and sustenance. So one can sense a certain relish in the disciples as now they are given the responsibility to care personally for him. Go on, you people, they say, verse 36. Go away. Go on. Go back to your homes. It's, it's even time. Give the man some, some rest and relief. And they, the record says again, they had sent away the multitude and they took him even as he was. Isn't that a most interesting expression? Have you ever noticed that before? It's a little phrase, isn't it? Even as he was, that is uh, ripe for thought. And it shows that he was, in his temptations, touched with our infirmities. He was, although the Son of God, he was not an automat. He got tired. His mind grew tired. The continual drain upon his resources. Bearing of the infirmities of other people. It all took a lot from him. He was very exhausted, utterly exhausted. They took him even as he was in the ship. That's an unprecedented statement in the record uh, of the Gospels that they should take him like that. And I suppose it's asking us to really enter in and understand how he felt. There was a desperate need for sleep and for the strengthening of himself. However, how do you escape 
an infatuated crowd. There were also with him other little ships. And really, one can only assume that they were going because he was going across to the other side. Because it was even time. They were little ships, which seems to imply that they were not ships of trade or ships of, um, of uh, the fishermen. There were other little ships going along. In other words, they couldn't let him go. If he's going across the sea, then we'll get in ships and we'll go with him. So even his retreat was going to be hard to engineer. And there arose, verse 37, a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. Again, we can read that with very little imagination and just pass on to the next verse and really miss so much, haven't we? Can you see that sea? At times it's just like a big piece of glass just sits in that low valley surrounded by those hills. And it really is beautiful to see. We saw it just like that. Almost a perfect surface across the Sea of Galilee. But other times the, the wind comes down. I suppose with the sun going down it's like the gully winds. Uh, you might have gully winds perhaps here. We have gully winds in Adelaide. And as there's a change in the evening, uh, the wind sweeps down over the sea. And apparently that can be very swift, very sudden, with the passing of the sun over the western skies, behind the western hills of Galilee. And so the winds then began to cut into the lake. But this was such that they had never really seen it before. They'd never seen it like that before. It was, was outside of their experience, even though most of them were fishermen. There arose a great storm of wind. There was more behind that wind, surely, than just a natural a gully breeze. A great truth was going to be taught to those who were privileged to be in the vessel. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. I mean, if you and I were in that vessel and you were sloshing around in, uh, in knee-deep water, how would you be feeling in the middle of that lake, only halfway across the lake? That's a very jeopardous situation. And you can imagine that we'd be looking one at the other, working desperately, we knew that lake, backwards. Knew all about it. Many of us had spent our, our whole life upon that lake so to speak, really knew it intimately in all of its, uh, its different ways. But now we are in a grave plight. And even as experienced fishermen, we have used all of our resources, all the things that we used to do to get ourselves out of predicaments like that, we've used a lot. And that's the very point, surely, that was being made to the disciples. It could have been a lighter wind that uh, they could have managed through their own expertise. But there they were, in control of the vessel. The captain, the captain of their salvation is asleep in the vessel. And they are in control and they were enjoying it, no doubt. Set off the crowds. Come Lord, here's a pillow, sit down here, have some rest. We'll look after this. And so off they went in that vein. And it wasn't long before, in their self-confidence, they were caused to realise their own insufficiency. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 24 says the ship was covered with waves. You can imagine that wind just 
bellowing into the ship, just lifting it up as it would, lifting up the waves and roaring through the rigging of the ship. It would be a frightening experience. You'd be yelling out one to the other, trying to give commands, but the wind would just take your words from your mouth. As one calamity came fresh upon another, in other words, it was out of control. It needed the captain. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, verse 38, asleep on a pillow. Asleep on the pillow, says the revised version. And one would imagine that that's therefore the, the steersman's little seat where he sat. I mean, it wasn't a great ship. There's not a lot of pillows around. It was no, it was no liner made for, for sleeping quarters, was it? See, the only thing you can really think of that he could have had his head upon as a pillow must be the pillow, that is the steersman's leather-covered seat which was in the stern of the vessel. And that's where the captain would be. That's where the man who's in control would be. That's an interesting detail. The pillow, says the revised version, because there'd be only one. So he was where the captain should be but he was asleep. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Isn't that a tremendous statement? They were in control, weren't they? They sent the crowd away. They noticed that he wanted some rest. He had asked that they might be able to retreat to the other side. Go away all you people. They took control. They took him even as he was. They found the pillow. They laid him down and said, look, leave it to us. We're experienced men. You know, you can teach us lots of things, but when it comes to the Sea of Galilee, of finding our way across that, that uh, course of water, of understanding the ways and how to look after the ship, no, in that area, we are in our own right. We are sailors of old. We can manage this. And the wind has arisen to the point where they can't manage. And in their desperation... They come to the master and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? What an amazing statement. Do you ever feel like that? But you know, we're just like the disciples, aren't we? It's not until the wind is out of control. It's not until the time is such that we really are desperate that we go to the master with prayers that are strong and effectual. That's how James speaks about them. You know, we say many prayers, but sometimes I think probably you like I finish our prayers at night and we think, well, how does the, the very uh, line in our hymn, our Sunday school hymn say it? Do the wishes of our heart go with the prayers we say? But when we've got an anxious problem, then there's an intensity about that prayer that's truer, isn't it? Than at other times when the waters seem calm. But when the winds of life are really blowing, we know that we need prayer, don't we? And perhaps young people don't really understand that. Because I don't think I understood that when I was young. But as life goes on and one's own powers are less and the responsibilities are more, and responsibilities not just of yourself, but of your family, your children, and of your ecclesia, of your larger family. As the responsibilities gather, and as the, the old man of the flesh isn't able to do what he used to be able to do, 
increasingly one sees the need for the kindness and power of the master to be in our life and that's exactly what this experience is all about they were driven to the point of extremity until great fishermen that they were men of the sea experienced mariners they come to the master and ask him about the very thing in which they were experts master carest thou not that we perish that's a tremendous statement isn't it what a change has come upon them carest thou not that we perish so in good times as in difficult we are to seek the master not just when the difficulties are beyond and over our head but as then now, as then so now the comment from the master is useful he arose it says in verse 39 and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm there had been a great storm in verse 37 now there was a great calm in verse 39 and he said unto them why are ye so fearful how is it that ye have no faith and they feared exceedingly and said one to another hovering perhaps in some distant part of the boat somewhere where he couldn't hear somewhere where they had opportunity to talk it through one with the other or one or two with each other what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him there was something about this that was even greater than what had happened before if we look back at the things that have occurred we see a catalogue of remarkable, of remarkable miracles but nothing quite like this they seem to be completely astounded when he could even speak to wind and waves and they did what he said you see he had, cleaned that, he had cured that man in the synagogue at Nazareth or in Capernaum I should say in chapter 1 he had cured the fever there had been many people at the door of the house that evening there had been even the curing of the leper there had been the man who was lame there was the man with the withered hand there were all those people that came from other parts but it was all in a human level wasn't it now he was a man who was exercising control over nature itself that's creator's power it didn't have to do with men he was speaking to the very elements and they were totally under his control that was a new experience for the master it was outside of human relationships and that was the extent to which now the divine power was being seen they feared exceedingly it was as though God was in their midst as though the very authority and power of heaven was then in that little vessel what manner of man is this says the RSV who then is this because you see the control of those things was Yahweh's it was stated that way a number of times in the Old Testament let us have a look at some of those passages what manner of man is this Psalm 89 the control of the oceans 
was God's priority. Psalm 89 and verse 8. O Lord God of hosts. Titles expressive of God's wonderful power to defeat and to conquer. O Yahweh God of hosts. Who is a strong Yahweh like unto thee? 89 verse 8. Or to thy faithfulness round about thee. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. What expressed, expressed the strength of Yahweh, verse 8? Because he ruled the raging of the sea and stilled the waves thereof. Psalm 93. Well, the sergeant wrote a hymn about this psalm, didn't he? It's one of, our, one of the very beautiful hymns that have been included in the more recent book it's based on this psalm 93 which was in fact Brother Sargent's favourite psalm I'm led to believe so we read in Psalm 93 in verse uh, 2 thy throne is established of old thou art from everlasting the floods have lifted up O Yahweh the floods have lifted up their voice the floods lift up their waves <coughs> Yahweh Nahai is mightier than the noise of many waters Yea, than the mighty waves of the sea, thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Yahweh, forever. But look again at that psalm. Look at that carefully. Look at the transference of thought between verse 4 and 5. Is the ultimate sense involved with water and wind? Or with people and the troubles of life. What is it that stills the storm? Thy testimonies are very sure. See that verse 5? That's full of instruction to us. Because the psalm in its truest sense is not talking about the waves of the sea, is it? That psalm is talking about how God in our lives can still the tempests that rage around our own heads from time to time. It says, Yahweh on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. How? Because his testimony is sure. And the command of his word can go out over the storms of life and can make things sure again. They we're all in turmoil, tossed to and fro. All kinds of great difficulties that never seemed that they could be overcome. But Yahweh's word can make us on sure ground. It can give us confidence. That's a beautiful psalm, isn't it? Very beautiful psalm. 29th chapter of the Psalms. Psalm 29 and verse 2. Give unto Yahweh the glory due unto his name. Worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. Can you hear it? The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. See, that's a picture of God supreme upon the waters, isn't it? Controlling the waters. When the psalmist spoke of that, he clearly had, I believe, from the context of the psalm, the Mediterranean in mind. 
And out there on the Mediterranean, which was the sea of the nations, it was the voice of Yahweh that was thundering. It was echoing upon those waters and controlling them. Yahweh is upon many waters. Great waters, says the margin. And the Mediterranean was the great waters. Of which the Sea of Galilee, where the Lord was, was but, but a small representation. But it was a representation of the great waters, but it was a sea in Galilee. But not really just Gent Jewish territory, was it? Because... Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. There lots of Gentiles in that area too. So it was like a symbol of him being upon the great waters. Of his power over all of the beasts. Those great powers that arose as we read in Daniel chapter 7. Out of the waters. So Psalm 29 is speaking about his voice to control them. And Daniel is an expression of that isn't it? Daniel is an expression of the voice of God that's gone out down through the centuries, through all the turmoil, all the winds of, of international uh, interaction have blown upon that sea and blown it one way and another. But the voice of God has gone out across the seas from the time of Daniel on and it has controlled the events that will happen in the sea of nations. Psalm 107. Another beautiful psalm. Expressive of the skills of the mariners when they have been exhausted. This has a peculiar relationship to what we are looking at in Mark chapter 4 because it's about the mariners. And that's what some of the disciples were. They that go down to the sea in ships, verse 23. You know how this is, Psalms broken up in various sections, isn't it? And how God in every circumstance, whether it be in the wilderness, whether it be the prisoners, whether it be the seafarers, verse 23, in all circumstances, a God is able to control and to give life. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. The storm upon the lakeside was not accident. The storm was brought by the hand of God. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. I haven't been in a sea like that, but it must be absolutely terrifying. I do remember once going from North South Island to North Island in New Zealand, and you go past that strait which is famous for its great waves, but we were in a strong and modern ferry of some uh, 200 feet long, I suppose. Might have been 300 feet long. It was very long. Modern ship. How long would it be? Even longer than that. But even as it was, you know, sometimes you could see the wave up there and your ship was down here. And great big vessel as it was, it still gave you something of the impact. But now if you shorten that vessel and make it about the length of this room and suddenly you're right down here and the waves are up there and then you're right up here and the waves are down there. It must have been a frightening experience to travel by sea in time of storm and ages past. Who could bear that for too long? Shake the, uh, shake the nerves up, wouldn't it? They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro. Here's our disciples. When all of their experience has been drained, all of their initiatives have been uh, used up. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and at their wit's end... Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he bringeth them out of their distresses. 
He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Almost the very words, isn't it, of Mark chapter 4. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. And here's the exhortation that comes from the psalm and from Mark chapter 4. Oh, that men would praise Yahweh for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. That has a very peculiar relationship to the circumstances that we have in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. So when the disciples began to think about it, what he had done was affect not so much the waves, but taught them a great lesson. We come unto our master sometimes only when we're in desperation, when things are really grim. We should be always of the same mind toward him and realize that in all circumstances of life we have tremendous need so that our prayers are passionate prayers. The effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But because that was divine power in all of those passages and others, they couldn't help but say, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so they came in the even, evening, because we read in verse 35 of chapter 4 that it was the evening. They came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And there was a rather stiff cliff that ran up from the small shoreside up onto the hills of the Gadarenes, which we in fact today would call the Golan Heights. It's a very level area up there. Particularly in that northern half of the border of the Sea of Galilee, it's a very level area. There's just a little lip along the, the sea and you go up from there and that would be the area of the Gadarenes from which, from the cliff, from that plateau there's a steep decline which uh, drops down into the sea below. That's the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This was Gentile territory. No doubt he was of Gentile extraction. And immediately he got to that site. This man came out after him. They met him out of the tombs. You know, the description of this man is really quite remarkable. From verses 2 to 5, the record does nothing else than describe to us the situation of this man. Look at the details that are given. He met him out of the tombs. Why does it say that? This man was living a living death. He was associated with death. He felt his company was the dead. Life was not worth living. He was the hopelessness of a Gentile without a clear mind, without a clean understanding of righteousness. He was living among the tombs, says the record, a man with an unclean spirit. Well, a Jewish man found in that synagogue in chapter 1 
with an unclean spirit might be fit to clean. But what do you do with a, a Gentile that's in Gentile territory? And this man is with an unclean spirit dwelling among the articles of death, of uncleanness. His unclean spirit was right in the right field, so to speak. It was in the cemetery, among the uncleanness of death. Everything about this uh, uh, person is to speak of that, un of that hopelessness of the Gentile away from the things of God. He's a living symbol of exactly that. The record cannot help but impress us with that. With every detail it gives. Look at verse 3. Again it says it. It wasn't that he just went through the tombs as an experience by day for somewhere to walk. He had his dwelling among the tombs. He was dead while he lived. He was like that man by the pool of Bethesda in the Jewish case that said, I have no man that can help me. No man could bind him. Nobody therefore could help him. Perhaps some would have liked to help him and try to restrain the man and talk sense to him, but no man could do that. They tried to use chains on him, but he, he was completely unrestrainable. No, not even with chains could they bind him. He was ferociously out of control. The storms in his mind just couldn't allow him to settle with people and speak with them. You know, what it must be like to be like that. Very easy to read that, isn't it? But what must life be like for a man like that? Have we got sufficient wells of compassion that we can think what it's like to be like that? Go on, let's try and think about what it must be like. You can't face life. You can't grapple with problems. You can't deal with sanity. You just can't face reality. And although sometimes you might see just a faint ray of hope coming through, it almost frightens you to see reality and to live with reality. To live a normal, clean, decent, rational, sensible life frightens you because you just haven't got the mental capacity to face that. So you go back into your madness. And the turmoils of life all go through your mind. And the only place you can find that's fit for you is the place among the tombs. You know, there are people like that don't see them much today because we lock them up in a mental asylum as they used to be <coughs> we lock them up put them away we don't see them it might be better for them but it's not better for us because we never know their plight like we otherwise would know their plight and really it's good to be touched by a circumstance like that isn't it have you ever visited a prison now, people go to prison because they deserve to go to prison most times, all right. But have you ever visited a prison? Some time ago, I visited a prison because one of my patients was in prison. And uh, I had respect for that fellow in some respects. He'd done a very stupid thing. He'd stolen $3,000 in his work with a bank. And it was found out. You know, it was a very serious thing that he'd done. But I'd had some talks to him on the truth. And he'd shown some sort of interest in that. He was weak, see? He was very weak. And the silly fellow had done that, and now he was in prison. And when I got to hear that, I felt that I'd like to go and visit him. So I took 
a little bundle of pamphlets with him. And I thought it might be that in that circumstance he would want to do something about it. To visit prison is an impressive thing. You know, we've got freedom of life. We can go where we like. Go where we like and say what we like and buy what we like and do what we like. But in prison, they've got none of those opportunities. They're in prison with a whole lot of evil men. Men that, as far as that man person was concerned, for example, were really much lower than his normal thinking of life. He'd done a stupid thing because he was thought he was smart and could work the system. So he was in there among those men. And I was touched by that. Cruel, crude, rough-looking men, most of them. Terrible company. You know, that's what some people are like. They're chained within that circumstance. Some of them are there for 10, 20, 30 years. A position of hopelessness. It pays to have some understanding of that. You don't appreciate the liberties that you have until you are touched by the circumstances of one like that. So it was with this man here. Who could understand a man like that? What would you do with a man like that? There's really nothing much we could offer, is there? If you went near him, you might, might end up bruised, beaten. They couldn't even, couldn't even resist him with chains. Somehow or other, he'd pull through them, or you'd never get them on him. And when they had, verse 4, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him. He had a strange power and sense. He didn't care if he, if he took pieces of flesh of himself. He would still get rid of those chains. The feathers were broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, not only in the day, but night and day, in the turmoil of that tormented mind, he was in the mountains and in the tombs. It said it a third time. Do we need to be told a third time to know what it's saying? See? He's like a living death, isn't he? Three times it's told us. He's dwelling. He's among. He's among the tombs, in the tombs. Crying and cutting himself with stones. A terrible, disquieting experience to see a man like that. Terribly disfigured. Hopelessly unkept. In fact, the other record tells us that he was naked. Luke 8 and verse 27 tells us that he was naked. Have you got some picture of him now in our minds? A man naked. A man tormented. A man that so, had so often disfigured himself. A man whose visage bore all the contortions of a confused and unclean mind. A man outside of society, dwelling as it were, among and almost in the tomb total outcast from society this man I believe was a figure of the madness of the Gentiles at large there was in their minds not in the intensity of this picture but there was in their minds the sickness of, of, human, of humankind all the uncleanness all of the unreality that have been generated by centuries of idolatry and pagan philosophies and concepts which were, were running to and fro in all the minds. 
of the Gentile world. We're all brought together in this dramatic example of this man that no man could tame, no not with chains, who eventually with certainty would find himself among those tombs, among the things of death and uncleanness, which was his only present as society. So he was there, in desperate need, however, crying, verse 5. In his madness, there was nevertheless a desire somehow to escape it. He was crying, cutting himself with stones. Desperate plight. And I say that he, he had a need and felt it because, look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. What a beautiful statement. What a glorious statement. Can you see him coming up, my dear brothers and sisters? And you're among the disciples and you've learned a terrific lesson just a half an hour, an hour before. Tremendous lesson. Your little boat has come into the shore and your mind is still totally preoccupied by the, the almost superhuman the personage who is with you that is bearing divine power, speaking in God's name, speaking to wind and waves. And you're still shaking with the impact of his company of association with him and up comes this man and you begin to realise all of his background and read from his very circumstances from the scars and the expression of his face and from his nakedness and from all the stories that came about him what a tremendous plight that man was in and he worshipped him fit for worship and cried with a loud voice saying what have I to do with thee? Jesus, thou son of the most high God, out of the mouth of a gathering demoniac comes a statement of understanding. You see, even in a tormented mind, there are still sufficient neurons that can put a message together and understand some things the significance of the understanding, it's bearing upon themselves they can't live with because they, they're not able to reach up that high, but they can still see some things. You know, that's true of the mind of a person that might have some mental ailment. Another one of my patients who's actually now a brother, he's been baptised late on in life because his mind didn't allow in earlier stages of development. You know, he sits in my waiting room and he, he makes up the... Uh, the crossword. I don't know how you find crosswords, but I find them darn hard. I can never complete one, so I never start one these days. But this this man of of mental infirmity, he can work that that crossword out every day. That's a staggering thing, isn't it? He must have a very real reserve of of capacity. I was going to say intellectual capacity. In a sense, yes. He's able to remember a lot of things and he can work that crossword out. So we don't need to think that a person that's of infirm mind can't think some things. They can. You know what James says about the, the demoniac? He says that they also know that there's one true God. You see, they could understand things. This man comes and makes a beautiful statement. You know, months later, years later, the Lord's going to be with his disciples. He's going to say, whom do men say that I am? And it's only going to be Peter, who in that hour, 
against then the swing of popularity at that hour is going to be prepared to say thou art the Christ the son of the living God the rest of them were mute he hadn't asked them because he wanted what, to know what the opinions of men were really had he he knew what men were saying but now he had his twelve and he wanted them to say what they thought and it was only Peter that got to the point suddenly burst forth and understood the mind of the Lord that the Lord was desperately looking for companionship and understanding in his hour of trial thou art the Christ the son of the living God this gathering demoniac legion he could see it See, he wasn't persuaded by popularity. He just looked, whenever he could see reality, he just saw it clearly. Jesus, thou son of the most high God. Wonderful statement. It must have been because of what he saw when the Lord had been in that area before or what he'd heard, just overhearing some of the conversations in his confused mind, putting the picture together and knew that there was nothing like Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing like him had ever come upon the earth before. He was the son of the most high God. Glorious statement. I adjure thee, however, by God, your God, that thou torment me not. It seemed a measure of truth, but he was afraid of seeing any more. The storms in his mind are too great. And don't think that he's alone. You don't have to be a demoniac to feel like that, my dear brothers and sisters. There are people that have walked away from the truth for that, aren't there? You heard of people that have come and they've seen it all and they can see, yes, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, but they swing away from the truth because they're frightened. They might have to leave, leave their dwelling among the tombs. They might have to leave, leave the things of death and all the madness of this world and they don't think they can make it and so they won't make the move this man is symbolic of all of those people <coughs> for Jesus had been saying unto him as verse 8 really means come out of the man thou unclean spirit he had been there for some time verse 6 because he'd been worshipping the Lord and the Lord had said to him come out of the man thou unclean spirit but the man didn't want that see verse 7 he was scared of that I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And when he made that expression, it was really partly to do with the, the thought of the times. That these demoniacs possessed him. And that they were going to be tormented by one who could, who could remove that, uh, that uh, demon from him. And so it was as though they were speaking, torment me not, because they were at home when they were in a body. So the superstition went. And when they were outside of that body, they were tormented. For Jesus had said, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And by this process of conversation, he's going to bring the person to a point where he can, he can accept the cure and face the real world. In every case where these men, almost in every case I think, where such men came to the Lord and there's a record of their cleansing, there's a tremendous turmoil, isn't it? One on another occasion fell frothing and another was tormented, that one in chapter 1. It was a terrific thing to come out and face the real world and stand at it and look at it and stand clean, <coughs> strong in your own understanding. He said, my name is Legion. 
for we are many. And nothing could more clearly express the man is legion, for we, plural, are many. And his understanding was that a whole legion of demons had possessed him. You know, the term legion is a, is a Roman term. And there were lots of legions of Romans in that area, and perhaps it was because of that that he'd come to think of himself like that. There were six Roman legions stationed in Syria at that time. A detachment of them being a cross in Megiddo, actually. They therefore were called legions. And this man had taken to himself, perhaps because of the circumstances of the time, he'd taken the name of legion. There isn't a legion between three to six thousand men. So he considered that he was utterly infested with these demonic spirits. You know, that the record is not accepting that concept is clear because it says in the earlier reference in verse 2 that he was a man with an unclean spirit, pneuma. Now that's important to note there and put it together with all the various descriptions of this condition. If you want a list of them, in verse 2 it's an unclean spirit. In verse 8 it's thou unclean spirit. In verse 9, it's legion, for we are many. In verse 10, it's them. In verse 11, it's devils or demons, as the word is in the Greek. And again in verse 15. We learn too in verse 15 of what the real problem was. He was mentally unstable, because then he was in his right mind. When the cure came, it was his mind, verse 15, that was affected. It was his mind that was affected. He was in his right mind then, but before he had not been in his right mind, he was mentally weak. <coughs> now there was there, nigh unto the mountains, a great herd of swine feeding. Now, what the Lord's going to do is allow this man to see that his sickness has really been taken away. So that by seeing that, he can believe that. That it's gone, see? And until he can see that, he's not going to be comforted. Jesus had said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he said, I adjure thee, torment me not. My name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. This man had a great fear, you see, of being cleansed. It was all in you. Like men and women of this world that think that they can't leave there. Their entertainments and their sports and all their lascivious pleasures. Scared stiff to leave, to leave it. So verse 12, all the devils besought him, saying, Ascend us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. So the man now is saying to Jesus, send us into the swine. See verse 12 is as though the demons were speaking in the language of that time. He says he's legion. Legion of what? A legion of demons. So he speaks and says, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. He's speaking on behalf of them as he did also in verse 9. My name is legion for we are many. He's speaking on behalf of them. So forthwith, 
verse 13, Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirit went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Now, do you think that choked the demons? A spirit of madness took over that herd of swine, is it all? Flock of swine, herd of swine. Herd of swine, and down they went over that steep cliff that I was telling you about and ended up choked in the Sea of Galilee. As you know, pigs cannot swim. They cut themselves, don't they, with their, um, their hoofs as they are in the sea. So that's what happened. <laughs> what is it, my English expert? What do you call that? They're trotters. They're trotters. <laughs> well, I would have thought that if I had said they're trotters that you really would have laughed. I thought it was chooks that had trotters. <laughs> so, they choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine, verse 14, they fled and told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that was done you see really that was a part of Israel and the loss of that swine was but a principle reinstalled you know restored today in Israel you will not find swine you will find sheep you will find cattle you will find all kinds of things even some things that have got wings but uh, <laughs> you will not find swine in Israel today because they are not allowed to have them so it was in Israel of old. Swine were not kept in that country. So when therefore there was a loss of those swine, it was really saying they shouldn't have been here in the first place. Swine are unclean and they should be outside of Israel. It was a right thing that an unclean spirit should go into an unclean beast and it should be eradicated from Israel. But this really was Gentile territory too. And the sending of that spirit into the swine was really a remarkable symbolic act in which the, the unclean spirit of the Gentile world was being taken away and it was being cast away into the depths in baptism, so to speak, washed away, that they might be able to come back in newness of life and to be about a good work, a work of restoral of the Gentiles even, all of whom in measure had demented minds and were subject to all kinds of foolish philosophies. Just as this poor man could not see life as it really was, did not have any real hope, and in their desperation out in those dark lands, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, thousands of miles from the land of truth, never heard of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David and all of the glorious uh, prophets' messages. They were in darkness, weren't they? dwelling in the tombs that their life was spent in death. And they come to him in verse 15. They come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were suddenly disturbed. They now knew the answer for the loss of their income. 2,000 pigs, however, they didn't consider was a price to pay for the right-mindedness 
of legion it must have been a beautiful sight to see the Lord just didn't heal him he began to speak to him a good little picture because when we baptize a person that's come out of all kinds of predicament and that's not an infrequent event today we've got to spend some time with them you can't just allow them to go through the water and think well then everything will be alright you've got to spend some time there's lots of things in people's lives that need to be fixed up lots of things that they need to leave behind lots more questions that need answering and so it's a beautiful picture there to see the Lord just didn't say well off you go he was sitting with the Lord the man who had the legion sitting and clothed where did he get his clothes from I wonder Luke 8 27 told us he would be naked now he's clothed and in his right mind he'd been sitting there long enough for the action of the swine to have been uh, conducted for people far off to have seen what happened and then to have started talking to each other about it until they go and to find the cause of it and when they came there they see Gentiles sitting with the Lord of life it must have been a very beautiful conversation he wasn't lacking in basic intelligence it's just that he could never put life together he could never understand but now he's happy and he's in the Lord's company. You know, that's the secret to every one of us of all of our troubles. If you've got one of those minds that jumps up and down, that's always vibrant with all kinds of thoughts and passions and doubts and fears, you need to sit, you see. Sit with him and really take it in. Remember that Psalm 93? Thy testimonies are sure. You know the weaker vessel probably feels that more than the stronger vessel and in the midst of that my dear sisters what's needed more than anything else is not even a list in the morning saying you do accomplish all those things which is not a bad idea but that's not the ultimate the thing that we need more than all of those other things is to sit quietly and let the word of God the sure testimonies of God enter into our minds. You know, we can be so busy doing a million things that we can really be like the Jews who had their list to tick off, one to a hundred, and then they were perfect. But that's not the point. The Lord wants us to sit with him. That's the whole point of these beautiful uh, miracles that he conducted there. He can still those storms and he can cause us to see what is really important and what's not really important. And in the stilling of those storms and sitting with him and allowing, for example, the beauty of that message to come into our minds, we can go about our jobs with the greatest serenity and faith in him, which is, is truly living. To live like that's really to live like a demoniac. You're out of your mind. You're just sort of driven, driven madly, never seeing things as they might really be. What's really important. So we need to sit still with him like Legion did. And while he sat there, he was clothed and in his right mind. Look at those beautiful expressions. There's everything there of making a man every whit whole, isn't there? Every whit whole, clothed, sitting with the master in his right mind. But when the Gentiles saw that, they were afraid. It's like the reaction sometimes 
of, uh, of family and associates when they see somebody come out of the world and they think the man's gone mad he hasn't gone mad at all he's suddenly seeing life as it really is but they sometimes become very reactive in those circumstances and they, they are afraid of that I've heard since I've been here of some of you that have come into the truth and your parents have made all kinds of threats even threats of a very serious injury because they're afraid of that. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. Well, they said, we want pigs more than salvation. They began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Go from us. We don't want this. We were settled in our circumstances as they were before. What a tragedy, my dear brothers and sisters. When a glorious cleansing power like that has come into their company. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the demon prayed him that he might be with him. Isn't that an incredible thing? He's a lovely companion now. He's met a man that he really wants to be with forever. Where was he before? Among the tombs. Now his company, he wants to be the Lord of life and the disciples of the Lord of life. But Jesus said, you've got a work to do in your own territory. Jesus suffered him not to go, but saith in him, go home. Where was home? His dwelling was among the tombs before. Well, even where he would now go would be in a sense among the tombs because the people were in death. They needed light and life to come to them. Go home to thy friends. Not to new ones, but your old ones. There's a work to be done in your own territory like we must do when we find the truth. It's not a matter then of forgetting those from whom we've come. We've got to try and work with that situation and show them what Jesus describes here. Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. You're on the way to death in the tombs. Now you've got a vision. Now you know the promises made unto the fathers, the fulfilment of them in the Son of God. Now you have light and salvation. Go and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion. That's a glorious expression, isn't it? And he did. He departed, began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Turn to chapter 7. There's a lovely footnote to that. Chapter 7 and verse 31. Jesus is over in that way again. This man has gone and told them what great things the Lord had done for him and how he'd had compassion upon him. And there are all kinds of desperate cases over there. And now he comes into that area again. Has the gospel extension work of legion brought some benefits to the area? Again, verse 31, John, uh, Mark 7, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And that's the same area. Decapolis means ten cities. It was an area of colonisation 
by the Greeks first and then by the Romans. And so they built ten cities, Decapolis, and they began to establish them and colonise that new area, which had slipped away from the times, for example, when Reuben, Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh had occupied that area. And they bring unto him, in this Gentile territory, one that was deaf and had an impediment of his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. And he spit and touched his tongue. He was just like the demoniac before in this sense that something had to be done before he could realize inside that it could, that it had happened. And so he looking up unto heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Epatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened. And the string of his tongue was loosed, his impediment was gone. And he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more, a great deal they, they published it. Just like Legion had, you see. And they were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh, maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. There was a reception when he came into that area that time, and I believe that would be partly through the work of Legion. Great things had been done for him. You heard of that term before? The Lord hath done great things for us. It's from the Psalms, isn't it? When the Lord made that expression, he must have known it was from the Psalms. Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is a psalm which speaks of Israel coming out of captivity. It's a psalm of joyful deliverance, the expressions of joy at the time when God has brought back their captivity. And the Gentiles are watching them, marching back unto Zion, taking in the picture. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Gone were the days of exile. Gone were the days of living among foreigners and of the despisement that went with it. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. There's the wonderment of the, of the foreigners as they see this joyful company going back to Zion with songs upon their head. It was like the future, wasn't it? Of which Isaiah says in his 35th chapter and verse 10, They shall return unto Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. The Lord hath done great things for them, as says the foreigners as they see the joyful people returning. And as they hear the words of the Gentiles about them, they reply indeed and say, Yahweh hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Yahweh, as the streams in the south, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing when the harvest is complete. They went into exile, but they sowed their crop, and in the end they came back to Jerusalem with songs of joy. That's a time of Israel's return from, from a state of being in exile. 
Why should the Lord here quote it in Mark chapter 5 in circumstances which seem to be so completely diverse from the psalm from which he took it? Because when they went into exile, brethren and sisters, they went into Gentile lands. And the psalm spoke of their joy in coming out of Gentile darkness into the light of Jerusalem, into the light of life. So it was right. It was right that when the Gentile himself was coming out of that land and was going into Zion, when he cast away the things of pigs and of uncleanness and of the tombs and of death and was coming into cleanness of mind and to the purity of life with the Lord Jesus Christ, it was right that he should sing that the Lord hath done great things for him whereof he was glad and he went around to the foreigners and they saw that in turn and they said indeed the Lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad and then their impediment of speech was unloosed and they sang songs of joy and gladness as they were amazed to see that man with the impediment in their midst again rejoicing in a spirit of new life had come into that area that's what the healing of the demoniac meant the casting away, my dear brothers and sisters, is not just of, of one unclean spirit, but legion of them. It's the same joy that you and I experienced when we came into the truth and found out what life was all about. And all the myths and philosophies of the world began to move away from us as we saw what was right. It's the Bible that had the answer. It was our Lord Jesus Christ that could lift us up and give us hope. Let us sit by him. Day by day, my dear brothers and sisters, if our Bible school means something to us, sit with him. Don't let's get caught up in all the things of madness of which this world thinks they're important. All their, their ideas of fashion. All their ideas of pleasure. All their ideas of materialism. It's in this company that we have our love toward each other and in which we know what is true and right, isn't it? Now we are of right mind. Sitting clothed, happy and contented and about ready to tell the world that the Lord hath done great things for us whereof we indeed are glad. Thank you.